0: Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in here at Carla Reads the Classics. Let's finish up Edith Wharton's Ethan Frome. This is Chapter 9, The Conclusion. And again, thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. But the girl, she faltered, the girl will be waiting at the station. Well, let her wait. You'd have to if she didn't. Come. The note of authority in his voice seemed to subdue her, and when he had jumped from the sleigh, she let him help her out, saying only, with a vague feint of reluctance, But there isn't a sled around anywheres. Yes, there is, right over there, under the spruces." He threw the bearskin over the sorrel, who stood passively by the roadside, hanging a meditative head. Then he caught Mattie's hand and drew her after him toward the sled she seated herself obediently and he took his place behind her so close that her hair brushed his face all right matt he called out as if the width of the road had been between them she turned her head to say it's dreadfully dark are you sure you can see he laughed contemptuously i could go down this coast with my eyes tied and she laughed with him as if she liked his audacity nevertheless he sat still a moment straining his eyes down the long hill for it was the most confusing hour of the evening the hour when the last clearness from the upper sky is merged with the rising night in a blur that disguises landmarks and falsifies distances now he cried the sled started with a bound and they flew on through the dusk gathering smoothness and speed as they went with the hollow night opening out below them and the air singing like an organ Matty sat perfectly still, but as they reached the bend at the foot of the hill, where the big elm thrust out a big deadly elbow, he fancied that she shrank a little closer. "'Don't be scared, Matt!' he cried exultantly as they spun safely past it and flew down the second slope, and when they reached the level ground beyond and the speed of the sled began to slacken, he heard her give a little laugh of glee. They sprang off and started to walk back up the hill.' "'Ethan dragged the sled with one hand "'and passed the other through Maddie's arm. "'Were you scared I'd run into the elm?' "'He asked with a boyish laugh. "'I told you I was never scared with you,' she answered. "'The strange exultation of his mood "'had brought on one of his rare fits of boastfulness. "'It's a tricky place, though. "'The least swerve and we'd never come up again. "'But I can measure distances to a hair's breadth. "'Always could,' she murmured. I always say you've got the surest eye. Deep silence had fallen with the starless dusk, and they leaned on each other without speaking. But at every step of their climb, Ethan said to himself, It's the last time we'll ever walk together. They mounted slowly to the top of the hill. When they were abreast of the church, he stooped his head to ask her, Are you tired? And she answered, breathing quickly. It was splendid. With a pressure of his arm, he guided her towards the Norway Spruces. I guess this sled must be Ned Hale's. Anyhow, I'll leave it where I found it. He drew the sled up to the Barnum Gate and rested it against the fence. As he raised himself, he suddenly felt Mattie close to him among the shadows. Is this where Ned and Ruth kissed each other? She whispered breathlessly and flung her arms about him. Her lips, groping for his, swept over his face, and he held her fast in a rapture of surprise. Goodbye, goodbye, she stammered and kissed him again. Oh, Matt, I can't let you go, broke from him in the same old cry. She freed herself from his hold, and he heard her sobbing. Oh, I can't go either, she wailed. Matt, what'll we do? What'll we do? They clung to each other's hands like children, and her body shook with desperate sobs. Through the stillness, they heard the church clock striking five. Oh, Ethan, it's time, she cried. He drew her back to him. "'Time for what? You don't suppose I'm going to leave you now? "'If I missed my train, where'd I go? "'Where are you going if you catch it?' "'She stood silent, her hands lying cold and relaxed in his. "'What's the good of either of us going anywheres without the other one now?' "'He said. "'She remained motionless as if she had not heard him. "'Then he snatched her hands from his, threw her arms about his neck, and pressed a sudden, drenched cheek against his face. "'Ethan, Ethan, I want you to take me down again.' "'Down where?' "'The coast, right off,' she panted, "'so that we'll never come up any more.' "'Matt, what what on earth do you mean?' She put her lips close against his ear to say, "'Right into the big elm. "'You said you could, "'so we'd never have to leave each other any more.' What are you talking of? You're, You're crazy. I'm not crazy, but I will be if I leave you. Oh, Matt, Matt, he groaned. She tightened her fierce hold about his neck. Her face lay close to his face. Ethan, where will I go if I leave you? I don't know how to get along alone. You said so yourself just now. Nobody but you was ever good to me, and and there'll be that strange girl in the house, and she'll sleep in my bed where I used to lay nights and listen to hear you come up the stairs. The words were like fragments torn from his heart. With them came the hated vision of the house he was going back to, of the stairs he would have to go up every night, of the woman who would wait for him there, and the sweetness of Maddie's avowal. The wild wonder of knowing at last that all that had happened to him had happened to her too made the other vision more abhorrent, the other life more intolerable to return to. Her pleading still came to him between short sobs, but he no longer heard what she was saying. Her hat had slipped back and he was stroking her hair. He wanted to get the feeling of it into his hand so that it would sleep there like a seed in winter.' Once he found her mouth again, and they seemed to be by the pond together in the burning August sun. But his cheek touched hers, and it was cold and full of weeping, and he saw the road to the flats under the night and heard the whistle of the train up the line. The spruces swayed them in blackness and silence. They might have been in their coffins underground. He said to himself, "'Perhaps it'll feel like this, and then again after that I shan't feel the thing.' Suddenly, he heard the old sorrel whinny across the road and thought, he's wondering why he doesn't get his supper. Come, Mattie whispered, tugging at his hand. Her somber violence constrained him. She seemed the embodied instrument of fate. He pulled the sled out, blinking like a nightbird as he passed from the shade of the spruces into the transparent dusk of the open. The The slope below them was deserted. All Starkfield was at supper, and not a figure crossed the open space before the church. The sky, swollen with the clouds that announced a thaw, hung as low as before a summer storm. He strained his eyes through the dimness, and they seemed less keen, less capable than usual. He took his seat on the sled, and Mattie instantly placed herself in front of him. Her hat had fallen into the snow, and his lips were in her hair. He stretched out his legs, drove his heels into the road to keep the sled from slipping forward and bent her head back between his hands. Then suddenly he sprang up again. Get up, he ordered her. It was the tone she'd always heeded, but she cowered down in her seat, repeated, repeating vehemently, no, 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 get up. Why? I want to sit in front. No, no, how can you steer in front? I don't have to, we'll follow the track. They, sm- they spoke in smothered whispers, as though the night were listening. Get up, get up! He urged her, but she kept on repeating, "Why do you want to sit in front?" Because I, because I want to feel you holding me," he stammered and dragged her to her feet. The answer seemed to satisfy her, or else she yielded to the power of his voice. He bent down, feeling in the obscurity for the glassy slide worn by the preceding coasters, and placed the runners carefully between its edges. She waited while he seated himself with crossed legs in the front of the sled, then she crouched quickly down at his back and clasped her arms about him. Her breath in his neck set him shuddering again, and he almost sprang from his seat, but in a flash he remembered the alternative. She was right. This was better than parting. He leaned back and drew her mouth to his just as they started he heard the sorrels whinny again and the familiar wistful call and all the confused images it brought with it went with him down the first reach of the road halfway down there was a sudden drop then a rise and after that another long delirious descent as they took wing for this, it seemed to him that they were flying indeed, flying far up into the cloudy night with Starkfield immeasurably below them, falling away like a speck in space. Then the big elm shot up, shot up ahead, lying in wait for them at the bend of the road. And he said between his teeth, we can fetch it. I know we can fetch it. As they flew toward the tree, Mattie pressed her arms tighter and her blood seemed to be in his veins. Once or twice the sled swerved a little under them. He slanted his body to keep it headed for the elm, repeating to himself again and again, I know we can fetch it, and little phrases she had spoken ran through his head and danced before him on the air. The big tree loomed bigger and closer, and as they bore down on, he thought, It's waiting for us, it seems to know. But suddenly his wife's face, with twisted monstrous lineaments, thrust itself between him and his goal and he made an instinctive movement to brush it aside. The sled swerved in response, but he righted it again, kept it straight, and drove down on the black projecting mass. There was a last instant when the air shot past him like millions of fiery wires, and then the elm. The sky was still thick, but looking straight up, he saw a single star and tried vaguely to reckon whether it were serious or or the effort tired him too much, and he closed his heavy lids and thought that he would sleep. The stillness was so profound that he heard a little animal twittering somewhere nearby under the snow. It made a small, frightened, cheep like a field mouse, and he wondered languidly if it were hurt. Then he understood that it must be in pain, pain so excruciating that he seemed mysteriously to feel it shooting through his own body. He tried in vain to roll over in the direction of the sound and stretched his left arm out across the snow and now it was though he felt rather than he heard the twittering. It seemed to be under his palm, which rested on something soft and springy. The thought of the animal's suffering was intolerable to him, and he struggled to raise himself, and could not because a rock or some huge mass seemed to be lying on him. But he continued to finger about cautiously with his left hand, thinking he might get hold of the little creature and help it out. And all at once he knew that the soft thing he had touched was Maddie's hair and that his hand was on her face he dragged himself to his knees the monstrous load on him moving with him as he moved and his hand went over and over her face and he felt that the twittering came from her lips he got his face down close to hers with his ear to her mouth and in the darkness he saw her eyes open and heard her say his name oh Matt," i i thought we fetched it he moaned and far off up the hill He heard the sorrel whinny and thought i ought to be getting him his feed the querulous drone ceased as i entered frome's kitchen and the two women sitting there i could not tell which had been the speaker one of them on my appearing raised her tall bony figure from her seat not as if to welcome me for she threw me no more than a brief glance of surprise but simply to set about preparing the meal which frone's absence had delayed a slatternly calico wrapper hung from her shoulders and the wisps of her thin gray hair were drawn away from a high forehead and fastened at the back by a broken comb She had pale, opaque eyes which revealed nothing and reflected nothing, and her narrow lips were of the same sallow color as her face. The other woman was much smaller and slighter. She sat in an armchair near the stove, and when I came in, she turned her head quickly toward me without the least corresponding movement of her body. Her hair was as gray as her companion's, her face is bloodless and shriveled, but amber-tinted with swarthy shadows sharpening the nose and hollowing the temples.' Under her shapeless dress, her body kept its limp immobility, and her dark eyes had the bright witch-like stare that disease of the spine sometimes gives. Even for that part of the country, the kitchen was a poor-looking place, with the exception of the dark-eyed woman's chair, which looked like a soiled relic of luxury bought at a country auction. The furniture was of the roughest kind. Three coarse china plates and a broken-nosed milk jug had been set on a greasy table "'scored with knife cuts and a couple of straw-bottomed chairs "'and a kitchen dresser of unpainted pine "'stood meagerlessly against the plaster walls. "'My, it's cold here. The fire must be out,' "'Frome said, glancing about him apologetically "'as he followed me in. "'The tall woman who had moved away from us toward the dresser "'took no notice, but the other, from her cushioned niche, "'answered complainingly in a high, thin voice, It's only just been made up, it's only been made up this very minute. Zena fell asleep and slept ever so long, and I thought I'd be frozen stiff before I could wake her up and get her to tend to it. I knew then that it was she who had been speaking when we entered. Her companion, who was just coming back to the table with the remains of a cold mince pie and a battered pie dish, set down her unappetizing burden without appearing to hear the accusation brought against her. Frome stood hesitatingly before her as she advanced. Then he looked at me and said, "'This is my wife, Miss Frome,' after another interval, he added, turning toward the figure in the armchair, "'and this is Miss Maddie Silver. Mrs. Hale, tender soul, had pictured me as lost in the flats and buried under a snowdrift, and so lively was her satisfaction on seeing me safely restored to her the next morning that I felt my peril had caused me to advance several degrees in her favor.' Great was her amazement, and that of old Mrs. Varnum, on learning that Ethan Frome's old horse had carried me to and from Corbury Junction through the worst blizzard of the winter. Greater still, their surprise when they heard that this—that his master had taken me in for the night. Beneath their wondering exclamations, I felt a secret curiosity to know what impressions I had received from my night in the Frome household, and divined that. The best way of breaking down their reserve was to let them try to penetrate mine. I therefore confined myself to saying, in a matter of fact tone, that I had been received with great kindness and that Frome had made a bed for me in a room on the ground floor, which seemed in happier days to have been fitted up as a kind of writing room or study. Well, Mrs. Helm mused, in such a storm, I suppose he felt he couldn't do less than take you in. But I guess it went hard with Ethan. I don't believe, but. What I don't believe, but what you're the only stranger has set foot in that house over twenty years. He's that proud; he don't even like his oldest friends to go there. And I don't know any, and I don't know as any that do any more except myself and the doctor. You still go there, Mrs. Hale? I ventured. I used to go a good deal after the accident when I first married, but after a while I got to think it made him feel worse to see us. And then one thing and another came, and my own troubles but I generally make out to drive over there around about New Year's and once in the summer. Only I always try to pick a day when Ethan's off somewheres. It's bad enough to see the two women sitting there, but his face, when he looks round that bare place, just kills me. You see, I can look back and call it up in his Mother's Day before their troubles. Old Mrs. Varnum by this time had gone up to bed, and her daughter and I were sitting alone after supper in the austere seclusion of the horsehair parlor. Mrs. Hale glanced at me tentatively, as though trying to see how much footing my conjectures gave her, and I guessed that if she had kept silent till now, it was because she had been waiting, through all the years, for someone who should see what she alone had seen. I waited to let her trust in me gather strength before I said, "'Yes, it's pretty bad seeing all three of them there together.' She drew her mild brows into a frown of pain. It was just awful from the beginning.' I was there in the house when they were carried up. They laid Maddie Silver in the room you're in. She and I were great friends, and she was to have been my bridesmaid in the spring. When she came to, I went up to her and stayed all night. They gave her things to quiet her, and she didn't know how much till morning, and then all of a sudden she woke up just like herself and looked straight at me out of her big eyes and said, Oh, I don't know why I'm telling you all this. Mrs. Hale broke off crying. She took off her spectacles, wiped the moisture from them, and put them on again with an unsteady hand. "'I got about the next day,' she went on, that Zena Frome had sent Maddie off in a hurry because she had a hired girl coming, and the folks here could never rightly tell what she and Ethan were doing that night coasting, but when they ought to have been on their way to the flats to catch the train. I never knew myself what Zena thought, and I don't to this day. Nobody knows Zena's thoughts.' "'Anyhow, when she heard of the accident, "'she came right in and stayed with Ethan "'over to the ministers where they carried him. "'And as soon as the doctor said that Maddie could be moved, "'Zena sent for her and took her back to the farm. "'And there she's been ever since?' "'Mrs. Hale answered simply. "'There was nowhere else for her to go, "'and my heart tightened at the thought "'of the hard compulsions of the poor. "'Yes, there she's been,' Mrs. Hale continued, "'and Zena's done for her and done for Ethan as good as she could. "'It was a miracle considering how sick she was, "'but she seemed to be raised right up "'just when the call came to her. "'Not as she's ever given up doctoring "'and, and she's had six spells right along, "'but she's had the strength given her "'to care for those two over 20 years, "'and before the accident she came, "'and before the accident came, "'she thought she couldn't even care for herself. "'Mrs. Hale paused a moment and I remained silent.' plunged in the vision of what her words evoked. It's horrible for them all, I murmured. Yes, it's pretty bad, and they ain't any of em easy people either. Maddie was before the accident. I never knew a sweeter nature, but she suffered too much, and that's what I always say when folks tell me how she's soured, and Zena, she was always cranky. Not but what she bears with Mattie wonderful. I- I've seen that myself. "'but sometimes the two of them get going at each other "'and then Ethan's face would break your heart. "'When I see that, I think it's him that suffers most. "'Anyhow, it ain't Zena because she ain't got the time. "'It's a pity, though.' "'Mrs. Hale ended sighing "'that they're all shut up in there in that one kitchen.' In the summer time, on pleasant days, they move Mattie into the parlor or out into the dooryard, and that makes it easier. But winter's theirs, the fire's got to be thought of, and there ain't a dime to spare up to the frowns. Mrs. Hale drew a deep breath as though her memory were ease of its long burden, and she had no more to say. But suddenly an impulse of complete avowal seized her. She took off her spectacles again, leaned toward me across the beadwork table cover, and went on with a lowered voice. There was one day, about a week after the accident, when they all thought Maddie couldn't live. Well, I say it's a pity she did. I say it right out to our minister once, and and he was shocked at me. Only he wasn't with me that morning when she first came too, and I say if she had died, Ethan might have lived. And the and the way they are now, I don't see there's much difference between the Frones up at the farm and the Frones down in that graveyard, except that down there they're all quiet and the women have got to hold their tongues. And that, my friends, is the conclusion of Edith Wharton's Ethan Frome. I hope you enjoyed the reading. Thank you so much for listening here at Carla Reads the Classics. Until next time.